a bit of a change of pace. Less of me and more of someone else talking about Russian elites. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. So as I said, something a little bit different today. I'm experimenting with also trying to bring in new voices as occasional elements of the podcast. And so what I'm doing today is basically running a lengthy interview that I had with Fabian Burkhardt of the Leibniz Institute of Eastern and Southeastern European Studies, in which we talked about his research, particularly in terms of Russian elites, and what's happening in the country at the moment, given the current impact of crisis and Ukraine and sanctions and all the other stuff that we know all about. I will leave a whole selection of links to his work as well as other cited works in the programme notes as usual. And as ever, comments on this kind of experimental approach, very, very welcome. Now, let's hear more from Fabian. So, Fabian, please introduce yourself to the, the listeners. Yeah, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Leibniz Institute for East and Southeast European Studies in Regensburg, Germany. And uh, I am a political scientist uh, with a regional focus on the post-Soviet states, uh, most specifically on, on Russia and, uh, and Belarus. And um, yeah, my research interests are mostly located in the field of uh, comparative authoritarianism. So basically to understand how authoritarian regimes, how they work, and with a specific uh, focus on executives and also elites, um, how they function within um, authoritarian regimes, specifically in, in Russia and Belarus. Uh, and recently my newer projects are related to the sphere of um, digital transformation, digital tech, tech, technologies, how they um, how they evolve uh, within authoritarian regimes. That's great, thanks. And again, for everyone, I will be including some links to some of Fabian's work in the program notes to the podcast, and obviously also mentioning a couple in our discussion. So look, let's let's start off again. We'll start with the. The big and obvious questions at the moment, uh, we've just had coming out today a piece from Bloomberg saying that you know, a whole variety of inevitably unnamed key figures within the government are expressing their concerns about what's going on and they're worried about Putin and such like. That's fine, but what's your take? I mean, do you think that the current situation is making the elites more or less loyal to Putin? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a Great question. In fact, not very easy to to answer because of the the whole fog of war that we're currently seeing in in Russia. And, and in fact, I have a, a short answer and a slightly longer answer. And uh, and the short answer would be, I think the the main paradigm uh, for Putin and and his dream uh, uh, as such is still 
kind of the stability of caters and, and everything is on hold with regard to elite dynamics. And yes, it's uh, true. We do see some occasional dismiss dismissals, reprisals, even some minor defections, I would say. Um, but in my view, they should rather be considered as exceptions rather than the rule. So it's at this point, at least uh, in the war, it's uh, it's, reader, uh, it's rather uh, really more about stability and, and putting things uh, on hold. Um, and if we see dismissals and replacements, I think it's always important to keep in mind that um, there usually there's not uh, always one single cause for dismissal. So this is because the war is going wrong, but usually there are some other uh, things at play, which I think we should always keep in, in mind. And uh, you mentioned the, the Bloomberg piece, and I, and I think uh, um, I think elite dynamics, it's important to keep in mind that uh, things are in flux. And I, and I like to think about this in, in terms of phases. And also the reports of, um, I mean, on, on these dynamics uh, that we have, they uh, indicate that we, we see uh, various phases. I mean, the first uh, initial phase was kind of a shock, disbelief, or even despondence with, with um, certain parts of the elite because the, the decision to go to war was, uh, uh, was um, made within a very narrow uh, circle with by, by Putin and, and himself, but the larger elite was basically kept in the dark. And uh, but right now, I, I think we're in, in phase two, um, where elites are mainly rallying around the flag, meaning rallying uh, around Putin. So the, the initial state of, of shock is over, um, and we're largely seeing. So partly this is voluntarily. Done, obviously, but also kind of forced. But in this, at this point, I think we're in a phase of uh, more or less um, kind of stability. But I think what's really going to be interesting is the phase uh, three. What what we really at this point don't really know that much. It seems to be really uh, kind of uncharted territory. Um, and this might, in fact, start when the effect of economic sanctions kick in or if something really goes wrong uh, with the war. And here we really don't know um, how things might be evolving. But I think thinking of elite dynamics as kind of phases, at least in this, uh, in this active phase of the war, I think is uh, uh, helpful. And I think one of the main theses I would uh, also make in, in, in this piece in the Russian Analytical Digest, that it makes sense to really look beyond this top layer of the elite. Um, so I think we've seen some significant, um, also in terms of numbers, uh, defections in the middle ranked layers of the elite and also in the, in the rank and file. So it kind of in the, in the mid to long term, this certainly will exacerbate the problem of loyalty versus competence in the state apparatus. Um, and, and it will accelerate the degradation of, of, of governance. So, so the issue of human capital within the uh, civilian, but also in the military Bureaucracy, that, that's uh, certainly going to be really a crucial, um, a crucial point. And uh, so it's likely going to make the, the, um, the system more prone to, to mistakes uh, because of kind of the, this issue within the middle ranked uh, elites. But at, at the top level, I think with, with a few exceptions, I would say that we're rather, um, yeah, lo uh, seeing more or less uh, kind of rather uh, stable, uh, stable equilibrium, if if you want to uh, want to have it have it called that that way. So that would be more or less the, the short answer. But I think there's a lot to say in terms of whether this really matters. And uh, uh, what I would suggest maybe 
um, yeah, to, to look at uh, several constituencies uh, like the civilian bureaucracy, the, the security council and the big business, like how these uh, three uh, have reacted to the war in, in, in the last uh, one or two months, I would, th I would say, to, to, to flesh out maybe these developments and uh, kind of these faces that, that we have seen. But maybe you've uh, something to, to add in the meantime. I think it's interesting. I mean, this is the thing. Stability can often mean ossification. Uh, and although I mean, it's, it's you know, we we have these pretty credible reports that central bank chair Nabulina has tried to resign and and, and not being allowed to. Um, the question is obviously how far conscript ministers um, are are effective ones. And I think it's interesting this point about sort of the rally around the flag. You know. And how far that's loyalty and how far it's because they frankly feel trapped and therefore there's no option. But what I really wanted to do was actually just to sort of piggyback on that is to drill down. I mentioned this piece that you wrote for Riddle Russia, foolproofing Putinism about the sort of very ambitious plans of Prime Minister Bishustin to try and create a kind of a, a thoroughly properly working system. And obviously that was, the, that was something that came out last year. I can't help but feel that... I mean, on the one hand, all this kind of prep may well have been useful in coping with the current crisis. But on the other hand, surely for someone like Mishustin, the current situation really means that any grand plans and ideas he may have had for the future are really going to be swept away by the need just to crisis manage. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, it's... Um really kind of kind of a challenge for this uh, civilian bureaucracy that uh, that we are seeing mostly because they they it seems at least uh, reporting that that we have uh, is indicating that they were not included i mean that there was this famous um, uh, security council meeting on the 21st of february uh, where uh, we have seen this kind of maybe slip of tongue of, of Mishustin where he said that yeah we've been preparing basically for recognition of the People's Republics for uh, quite some time. And um, in fact, uh, the reporting that we've seen afterwards, it, it seems that really this kind of preparation has been going on uh, for quite some time, but um, it seems that kind of the civilian bureaucracy with uh, kind of Mishustin as the, as the prime minister, that they were not really prepared um, for the scale of the war and for the scale of the sanctions. So the question would be, and I think this uh, really makes it interesting to, to ponder like how they actually reacted and why they might have reacted that way and what it, what it means for their personal plans as, as bureaucrats, but also for their ideas uh, how the, the Russian sta state should develop. I mean, um, you mentioned uh, Nabiulina, the, the governor of the central bank, and, and there has been this, this rumor, of, in fact, from various sources that she handed in this resignation, um, but Putin didn't let her go. And um, the, now the, the main question for me is whether this really matters, whether she actually wanted to resign or whether she didn't want to, because um, I think we are really uh, having some trouble like really making sense of what's going on in the elite because of the, the lack of information that we have, the lack of reporting, closing down of, of independent media, really not much investigative reporting going on. And so even hard to basically code 
statements or, or actions of lead actors uh, because of the yeah lack of information and it's always also sometimes not very clear what the kind of public statements and actions really uh, reflect what people do think uh, privately so that's one of the one of the main uh, challenges but I think my uh, main argument here would be that it doesn't really matter whether she wanted to resign or not but the fact that she, she remains in office and uh, she was just uh, uh, basically renominated for another five-year term as governor of the central bank uh, that's key and there were other other actors in um, take andre costin at um, at the vtb bank who was also renominated for another five years which indicates that that putin really uh, wants to freeze uh, kind of the current um, management uh, that he has uh, built after basically after the, um, 2020 with the new Michusin government. So uh, it doesn't really matter what they uh, what they think in private, but, but as long as they act and do their job, as, as uh, I've called this basically foolproofing uh, Putinism. So I think at least during, during this active phase of the war, uh, it's doesn't really matter what what they think in, in in private so what so one might in fact ask we might ask ourselves so why even if let's assume they they are discontent uh, with with the war um uh, they in fact would would have preferred another kind of uh, development of of events why would they stay in office why don't they revolt at least in, in part of the civilian bureaucracy i think there are uh, several reasons like within if we go back to this phase two this rally around the, the flag phase and i think there's a, uh, one reason there's a lack of international exit option exit options um, take uh, dvarkovic who has been uh, deputy prime minister uh, until 2018 so he had this international <clears throat> exit option um, at, at fide the chess federation uh, so, but Nabulia, she, she cannot go to, let's say, at an international position at the World Bank or the IMF, etc. So these options are closed. So that kind of uh, keeps people within the system and it, it doesn't really matter. They, they cannot take another uh, position there. So it's not probably not that attractive, but it's, it's more attractive if you think in cost benefit uh, terms, like basically their calculations might be it's more beneficial to actually cling on to, to their uh, current positions um, and we've also seen that's what that would be the second region we've seen some uh, repression against uh, defectors uh, take Dvarkovich and his statement uh, critical of the war um, and he was heavily criticized uh, by United Russia's uh, Turchak and he was uh, essentially then uh, sacked from from the from the Skolkovo board meaning that this has also been supported by Shuvalov by by a web, the development institution. Uh, and the other example would be uh, Chubais, um, who uh, left uh, the country, uh, most likely also due to, due to the war. But we also have seen uh, his successor, Adrasnano Kulikov, uh, who has then um, made a statement and started uh, or triggered an investigation into Chubais' uh, period at Rosnano when he was uh, the head of the Rosnano agency, um, which uh, indicates um, that is kind of a reaction uh, against uh, Chubais leaving leaving the, the boats, so to speak. And uh, it is quite, to, it's likely to be expected that there will be some criminal cases of people um, associated with uh, Chubais. Uh, and 
uh, the last point, like why people might actually stay loyal is, um, I mean, they retain if they remain in office, even though it might, <laughs> they might not agree with it in, in private, but they retain the options, the opportunities for rent seeking. And that obviously is for many is still an important uh, kind of reason for staying in power, um, remaining their privileges, their control over financial flows, etc. cetera. Um, and so the, the, these combinations of, of factors, I think at, at least in this phase have contributed to, to this fairly, yeah, kind of stability at, um, at this uh, top level in the executive. But, but as I've mentioned, I think that the mid-level uh, is much more interesting. I mean, there have been reports at the, at the central bank that kind of a lot of bankers have uh, left their jobs um, and um, also in uh, take even go beyond the, the civilian bureaucracy. Um, reportedly, there are a lot of vacancies at, at straight state propaganda, um, uh, yeah, media institutions, let's call it propaganda institutions. Uh, so a lot of uh, kind of defections at Vigitaire uh, Car, the First Channel, uh, TAS, uh, news agency, etc. And also there, there will be some, yeah, some reports of uh, people not willing to go into Ukraine in, in the National Guard and, uh, and in, even in the military. So this indicates, I think, across the board that uh, especially at this, um, this mid-level or take the IT sector. So the last example where it's, I think it's uh, most, uh, most interesting that uh, several, even hundred thousands of, of people uh, leaving, leaving the country. So this kind of, uh, brain drain um, in in the in the sector. I think it will be in the in the mid to long term the the most decisive one. So even though we see uh, what you what you mentioned as kind of ossification, so we have this ossification at the top level, but at mid level, kind of we see this uh, gradual uh, degradation. Um, so more loyal people are likely to be. Uh, going in, into these uh, into these state positions to, to fill up the, the ranks, uh, uh, those who have been competent uh, at least uh, at least some of them have have left. Uh, so we we have this old dilemma between loyalty and competence, and and uh, which me makes it likely uh, that um, the re regime uh, will get much more prone to to um, making uh, mistakes. Now returning uh, to Mishustin, I think. Um, so far, the economic block, uh, I mean, they, they've um, taken a lot of measures that, that we know from pandemic crisis management. Uh, so it's, it's fairly typical. I mean, like Mishustin, our first deputy PM, Belousov, and Mayor Sobyanin, they're kind of the, the war crisis management, but a lot of their instruments are fairly similar to, to the one that we know already from the, from the pandemic. Um, they've kind of even reactivate, they've tried to reactivate some old measures uh, to reduce administrative pressure on businesses, uh, to, to get, get some preferences to, to IT professionals, et cetera. Um, but essentially, um, it, we will see in, in how far they, they will be able to, to, to manage um, um, the current situation. But essentially, um, at this point, I think they, they are still... Um, fulfilling uh, their main mission which which i would call for foolproofing putinism mainly they're even though decisions are uh, taken that they might or might not support they still um, fulfill their their mission of stabilizing the country um, um, in spite of uh, kind of whatever decisions putin makes in foreign and security policy and 
Um, as long as the Michoustin government uh, remains in power, I think this this main assumption um, still still holds. So so they they fulfill their function, and 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 Putin basically is. Uh, yeah, free to 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 navigate um, um, and uh, take whatever decisions he um, he likes in, in in foreign and security policy, and and, and it's I think that the, the main success, uh, what I think so far they have been successful is basically to push back uh, to turn basically the Russian economy into a full scale mobilizational mobilization economy. So there, after like this initial phase of uh, where they've been fairly uh, inactive or not very visible uh, during this uh, first active phase of the war, I think now they're, they're um, back in terms of crisis management in, in terms of pushing back against uh, those in the elite that that would like to turn kind of the Russia into into this kind of mobilizational uh, state, uh, which would also heavily affect uh, the the um, relation between the state and the and the economy. Yes, I mean it's interesting that obviously the new law has just been brought to the State Duma about what to do about uh, the assets rather of of companies which have withdrawn from or suspended themselves from the Russian market. And it's really quite clear, clear that this represents, as you say, a victory for the technocrats in that it's definitely moved back away from the notions of sort of forced nationalization and such like. But it's interesting what you're saying about the lack of foreign exit options, which almost implies that if we really wanted to brain drain at the top of the system, we, we, we should be offering some of these people cabinet posts in the West. But anyway, let me just move on. I, I mean, I think I sort of have a sense of, of what you'll say, given what you're saying about sort of the, the the emphasis on stability or whatever, but we've had the cases of the arrest of Colonel General Beseda of the Federal Security Service, General Gavrilov of the National Guard, which of course inevitably created a certain amount of overheated speculation about a grand purge taking place. What will be your interpretation? Well, I think indeed these are um, well, interesting cases, and and we're still in the phase of the the, the fog of war, uh, and and probably it, it will take uh, time to to make a final make a final uh, judgment on uh, what this actually means. I mean, um, especially with uh, the FSB General Beseda, I think it's it's um, useful to recreate uh, the chronology of, of how things um, have involved. Uh, so I think uh, it was Andrei Soldatov on, on 11th of March who actually broke uh, the story based on his uh, sources uh, saying that, that Putin apparently is unhappy uh, with the FSB being engaged in, in Ukraine and that Beseda and, and his deputy Anatoly Bolyuch um, have been placed under house arrest. And since then, since mid-March, um, the story has been uh, developing, and um, on 8th of March, um, uh, Soldatov reported that Beseda uh, was transferred to Lefortovo, sort of to the uh, pre-trial detention center under control of the, of the FSB. And later on, uh, Soldatov reported that kind of the, the head of the Lefortovo detention center was replaced by another person, which kind of appears to indicate that something is is going on that uh, some kind of crackdown or even purge uh, is going on that's why you need to kind of to come also um yeah tightly control the the, the affordable uh, detention center and um also i think what is what is notable is that um 
The Beseda arrest uh, was uh, confirmed by Bellingcat's uh, Christo Grosev. So I think that's kind of a second source. Um, and Grosev, he, he has also said that uh, there like um, around 150 FSB agents uh, that have who have been dealing with Ukraine in, in the past years, a significant, a significant number of them um, have left the, AB, uh, the FSB in the meantime, or some of them have even been arrested. So we're still waiting for his uh, final report on, on this issue, but, but this suggests that kind of, uh, there is a major kind of a major development in this fifth uh, service of the, of the FSB, which kind of indicates um, that even some, some, some kind of um, uh, purge within this uh, structure of the FSB dealing um, uh, with Ukraine uh, providing kind of an intelligence for uh, for Putin on Ukraine, something is is going on. And, and at this point, I think it's um, yeah, there's actually no reason to um, uh, not to believe these kind of reputable uh, journalists. But uh, what I would take issue with is kind of the, the theories, uh, like what we believe is the reason uh, why these processes are are going on. And uh, just to restate what what has been. Uh, said about potential reasons for the arrests um, that is uh, well they've been delivering bad information to Putin that's one of the, the core issues uh, why the war um, has been going not very well at least in the first first phase and in, in terms of uh, yeah taking Kiev within three days etc um, that there has been like a large-scale corruption uh, within the FSB and uh, associated with um, um, yeah Ukraine-related intelligence, we we have seen like a, a variation of, of numbers from five to ten billion US dollars that have been misspent um, on Ukraine. And another theory is basically that uh, obviously the, the US intelligence uh, has been very well informed uh, about what was uh, going on in terms of planning the the invasion of uh, Ukraine and. Um, that's why it, it potentially could have been a, a, a deliberate leak uh, by Beseda himself to see where, how, where, and how information leaks, or basically just an attempt to to find out, uh, yeah, where agents are within the fifth service. So a fairly diverging uh, set of theories, um, and I think it's um, yeah still. Um, yeah, we still need some time to make sense of it. Uh, but I, I just like, like to highlight some inconsistencies which might point us to, to something that, um, yeah, that might be going on um, in in the background. I don't know. But um, at least there was another report by the Dossier Center by Hodorkovsky um, uh, saying that Peseda was actually not under house arrest and that uh, the that the person who was called the deputy of Peseda, uh, Boljuch, um, hasn't been actually a Beseda's deputy uh, anymore for at least since 2014, 2015. Uh, so in theory, he could still be under, under investigation. But if uh, if he had left the, the service uh, quite some time ago, so that points uh, to a development that is, uh, that is unlikely to be only related to, to the current, current uh, war failures. So I think that's uh, definitely something to, to keep in mind. But um, to me, in a sense, the, the most interesting part is uh, what uh, people don't really have, haven't really paid attention to is um, a report by the Union, the Ukrainian news agency from 7th uh, of March, uh, actually before um, Soldatov broke um, the news 
about the the alleged um, arrest against Beseda. And uh, this uh, report stated um, on, on 7th March that uh, Putin issued a directive uh, to create uh, an interagency investigative uh, group, um, Dmitry Shalkov uh, from the presidential administration, but Bostrykin investigative committee, uh, Krasnov from the prosecutor general's office, and the first deputy director of uh, the FSB, Sergei Karalyov. And so the, the report said that uh, this commission would investigate misspending of funds in Ukraine between 2014 and 2022. Um, so, again, I don't know. I uh, we we don't really have a confirmation from from uh, Russian news reports on this on this interagency uh, investigative group. But what is interesting is that um, this report mentions um, nine officials. Uh, that are currently be, um, allegedly under investigation. So not just uh, Beseda from the from the FSB, but also uh, Vladislav Surkov, so the, the previous point man on uh, Ukraine, uh, but from the Kremlin, uh, Vladimir Chernov, who was uh, responsible for for the near abroad in the presidential administration, and also his uh, successor Igor Maslov, uh, both from from the SVR, from the foreign intelligence, but uh, who. Uh, were or are in the case of Maslov responsible for the near abroad in the, in the presidential administration. Uh, then Yevgeny Primakov, uh, the head of the Russia Trudenchistva, kind of uh, Russia's kind of US uh, aid <laughs> agency. Uh, Mikhail Babic, uh, Yana Lantratova, uh, who both at, at, at some point in the past uh, were active in the Ministry of Economy dealing uh, with. Um, uh, with Ukraine-related uh, funds, and then uh, Inal Artzimba, um, who was also working in the presidential administration under Surkov, and um, who is now uh, has has a um, major um, position position in, in Abkhazia. And uh, the last person who was mentioned in the report was uh, Viktor Medvedchuk, who's now under arrest by by Ukraine. So what I think is interesting is so we have this group of of persons, and Beseda is obviously only one of them and so it, it might just be that what we are seeing it so it could be that uh, that this is um, um in fact um, leading us nowhere because kind of this report is based on on ukrainian uh, intelligence but if something bigger is going on um i mean there have been various rumors also that uh, vleslav surkov uh, has been under invest investigation or even under house arrest but uh, i think most credible reports are that he's not under house arrest still, but um, this could point at least to a development that kind of there's a kind of a long-term investigation going on into Ukraine-related affairs, um, especially when Chernov and Maslov are kind of also part of this um, um, set of officials that are um, that are under investigation, we we don't know. But essentially, I think it's important to to keep in mind that um, I think it's fairly untypical uh, for Putin to um, well have a recent event, something goes wrong, and then he su really suddenly um, cracks down on on, on officials uh, responsible for uh, for for a kind of a current development. Uh, so I think. Um, it, it will be interesting to, to watch these kind of uh, these officials and and the large part of these officials they they are doing fine so there's absolutely no report about them that that, that they have uh, troubles or are being under, under investigation take Babich for example uh, he's now in the 
Federal Service for Military Technical uh, Corporation, and they've just started a working group um, uh, to uh, basically look into sanctions and the effect of sanctions on on Russia. So he's been really active. And Primakov, he's just uh, criticized uh, his deputy. Natalia Pogonskaya for being too outspoken and critical about uh, about the war in Ukraine. So a lot of these officials, they they seem to be doing fine. Um, so the I think the general message would be that that we're we, we're still lacking a number of uh, of pieces of the of the bigger puzzle, and that's why I think um, we should be careful in, in in if kind of this crackdown within the FSB is going on. That uh, kind of uh, uh, that this should make us believe that uh, kind of something is really going on then Putin cracks down on the elite and this uh, indicates that Putin is really in trouble and uh, the regime is uh, close to, to collapse and that something is really bad. I, I think um, coming to the end um, uh, in, in, in answering this, this question, I think what it actually shows is um, there is kind of what, what uh, there seems to be kind of this classic tug of war under the carpet between several agencies and uh, the FSP seems to be one of them, but it actually shows that kind of this checks and balances between uh, security agencies, between state agencies, but this kind of still appears to be working and uh, they are still guarding each other. Um, and if this is uh, then true, that it, it appears that Putin at this point now uh, is, is likely receiving more accurate uh, information that he has received uh, before, uh, which means that, yes, okay, something um, we, this kind of highly personalized nature of the regime indicates that uh, this leads to suboptimal behavior. It leads to large-scale corruption. It leads to misinformation of, of uh, the president and kind of poor quality agency work in, say, in Ukraine. Uh, but it also appears to indicate that kind of put the Putin system still remains kind of flexible, kind of during the war, if this is really going on, then they, they kind of they in a high risk um, situation. Um, kind of this investigation appears to be going on, but um, Putin has not, um, I mean, stepped back from, from his main goal in, in terms of uh, shattering Ukrainian sovereignty and, and, and basically um, bringing Ukraine down to the knees, but he has basically reconfigurated uh, his actions and now uh, in, in this phase actually uh, focusing on Ukraine, which means that even, uh, so if this kind of investigation is, is going on, this still means that in, the, in this phase, the kind of the kind of the system as a whole is still working. It's, it's kind of a, um, a, an adaptation on the go of kind of several um, methods, kind of tactics, approaches, but kind of the overall strategy of, of kind of trying to, to really bring Ukraine to the knee, um, that has not uh, changed. So, at, so I think um, even if this kind of, um, yeah, say, um, minor purges are, are going on. Like if some 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 elites are sacked, uh, I think we should be very careful in in framing this that Putin really is in trouble. Uh, kind of regime stability is really in, in immediate danger, and and uh, this, uh, and drawing like far ranging conclusions on on the war in Ukraine. Yes, I mean I certainly would, would definitely agree that there is a, a the risk in part driven by um, wishful thinking, frankly that uh, purges equal, my gosh, the regime is going to collapse next Wednesday. I'm, I'm not entirely convinced, though, that actually the 
The constant struggle between agencies necessarily means that Putin gets more accurate information in that what it can often mean is they compete to come up with the more outlandish but uh, crowd-pleasing or at least Putin-pleasing lies. And that probably may well be one of the things that, that's happened in the past. But, you know, as you rightly say, who knows? Let's take a break and then let's come back and develop on that and talk about coups and rumours. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So we've talked about the situation within the elite, the degree of rally around the flag, the emphasis that Putin has placed continue on, on stability, and the fact that, yes, there may well be little purgelets, shall we say, but clearly no evidence of any kind of massive rifts within the system or between Putin and his own security apparatus. Well, let's let's play a little bit of fantasy politics then and think, OK, well, what would it take for Putin to be toppled by a coup? Again, I, I mean, I can't help but feeling a lot of the discussion at the moment about palace coups and the like. It is, again, wishful thinking because this would be the deus ex machina that actually solves so much of the problem for us. But so let, 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 let's try and flesh that out. How likely do you think it'll be and what would it take? Yeah, I think um, great question. And um, generally, I, I think um, I'm with the mainstream among experts, uh, but kind of against parts, let's say, of, of public, public thinking or kind of media reporting on, on this issue that uh, something might actually be going on or that uh, that something is, uh, in, in terms of a coup, is, uh, is really likely. And um, uh, I think, uh, yeah, we should post this in the show notes, etc. But I really like the, the pieces, uh, the piece by Adam Casey uh, on on the risks um, of a coup, which I completely agree about. And, and there was a really great uh, video, in fact, by Vladimir uh, Milov, uh, kind of the close um, Navalny associate, uh, who's explained this uh, very much in, in detail. I just highlight a few a few major points um, and adding some some of my own. And I think uh, the main conclusion um, one needs to draw is that uh, Putin has successfully coup-proofed his system. And I think at this point, um, it is fairly unlikely that the war has changed this 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 kind of the setup um, of of coup proofing uh, the system and there are a lot of well-known arguments uh, with regard to this uh, coup proofing mechanisms um, and basically that the Russian military is historically unpolitical and that is reluctant to to engage in political affairs that the um, FSB has kind of a military counter intelligence embedded in the military um, and in fact, we, we already see some, some evidence that the FSB has been, is fairly active in, in, in Eastern Ukraine um, in, in this respect and kind of um, conducting some kind of investigations. And, and what, what also obviously ties uh, the military to the regime and makes kind of a, a coup by, by the military unlikely that it is tied to regime by large-scale rent-seeking, which may, making it kind of fairly uh, dependent on, on these financial flows and, and the regime as such. 
And obviously, um, an argument that has also been made fairly often that Putin has created the, the National Guard uh, as a means for crowd control and also controlling potentially other, other elites. Um, but essentially, this means that there's no need if kind of a large scale a protest movement uh, would occur, uh, occurred that uh, this would alleviate kind of the, the military, at least in, in the first phase, to, to crack down on protests because there's a National Guard. And this would also kind of uh, alleviate them of the of the task to uh, not to have kind of uh, to reserve um, um, to revert to to a bloody crackdown on, on protesters. So because you have this division of labors, the checks and balances between the agencies, kind of also a division of labor um, that kind of makes uh, makes um, yeah a coup. Uh, very unlikely. And uh, so one question one might ask whether kind of the, the um, National Guard's role in the war currently in Ukraine, whether this uh, degrades uh, its capacities uh, within Russia to such a degree that it actually could uh, pose a potential danger to, uh, to uh, uh, cracking down on, 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 on protesters, on, on uh, fulfilling their fun functions as, as riot police. But um, as at this point, I think there's not that much evidence, but I think this is might be something to watch. But um, yeah, some interesting points that Milov in fact makes why a coup is unlikely is in fact that you need, if you try to uh, plot a coup, you need uh, a little a legitimate basis um, um, afterwards. Um, and so one would need to look at kind of formal successors of Putin. Uh, if you look at the constitution and kind of former rules, which would be Mishustin as the, the PM at, uh, in the first place, then Matvienko um, uh, and from the Federation Council and then Volodin uh, at the State Duma. Uh, but in fact, it's, uh, I think it's uh, fairly well argued that, that they are weak and also really loyal to, to Putin. So the risk uh, for plotters to actually cooperate with them to engage in a coup would be extremely um, high and um, it's unclear if they would be kind of the, the political heads of, of such kind of a coup um, that kind of the state apparatus would would follow their orders because they they like in fact um, a lot of uh, legitimacy um, that Putin at, at this point still still has um, and we still have we we have this uh, problem of collective action because the kind of this checks and balances between uh, various agencies that uh, individually might uh, be thinking about plotting a coup, but collectively, uh, it's fairly difficult. And uh, I think an important point that um, uh, that Milov raises is that uh, yeah, every, everyone is being eavesdropped, so it's uh, so it's really. Um, uh, really highly risky, even to uh, not uh, not to think, but uh, to speak to speak out loudly about uh, with with colleagues or potential uh, plotters about this this kind of risk, um, and obviously because um, yeah, it's also risky because uh, decision making is so compartmentalized and siloed uh, within various uh, various state institutions and state bodies um, that people even might not know. Uh, which kind of uh, uh, yeah problems are hidden in, in various sectors of the state? Because I mean one uh, one um, one mechanism of this divide and rule uh, governance that, that Putin has created is that one agency uh, doesn't really know very well what what's going on in in other uh, branches uh, etc. So I think there's um, 
um, there's a whole lot of problems that uh, create, um, yeah, huge barriers for for kind of a mobilization for a coup. And uh, last but not least, I think it's really also about the the FSO, FSO the, the the federal uh, guards uh, service, the protection service of the of the president, uh, which is often forgotten when when people talk about potential coup plotters. So if kind of about the 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 FSB or the military or even the kind of the national guard, um, there is kind of this uh, fairly substantial guard. And and one important point is that they actually also control communication communication lines. So it um, so it's kind of split. Um, it's it's been taken out of, of the FSB. So even if someone else would kind of plot plot a coup, and communication lines would still be uh, with the with the FSO, uh, which kind of uh, retains uh, the possibility for the president to to communicate along the lines of of state governance, uh, which makes it even harder uh, for other coup plotters uh, to take control and and cut communications, for example. So. Um, Cut a long story short, I think I'm, I remain with the with the mainstream um, um, of uh, experts and also common thinking about coups in, in Russia. Also adding to um, some thoughts we've discussed before about the civilian bureaucracy that at this point at least they they seem to be willing still to fulfill their task of. Uh, uh, of uh, foolproofing the system, that also the state business and and oligarchs, business tycoons, yes, many of them are uh, very unhappy um, with the situation because they're losing a lot of money. But also here we have the problem that they are uh, usually competing. They're not um, uh, very well trained in kind of acting collectively, which makes it also hard to to collectively mobilize against the president which uh, is another reason uh, why I think the kind of a, yeah, um, a collaboration, let's call it that way, between kind of some security organs and the civilian bureaucracy, but also kind of state businesses or, or oligarchs uh, it makes it extremely hard because of the incentive systems that have been created in the, um, yeah, in the past um, yeah, years and, and even decades. So when we think like how, what could actually be a main risk for destabilization. So I would agree with the mainstream that it's unlikely to be a coup, at least at not at this stage. So we obviously this kind of a, we're still uh, in the war. We have still have the fog of war, and, and uh, things can can uh, evolve fairly quickly. But I think um, well, one issue. I mean, there, there's been a lot of uh, specula speculations about, about Putin's health. Um, and uh, until recently, I think I've been fairly skeptical about taking this kind of a, uh, this uh, issue um, into discussions about uh, potential scenarios of the Putin regime. But uh, right now we have this report by Project about uh, Putin having doctors around him that specialize in, in uh, uh, thyroid cancer, etc. Uh, people say one can live with this, with this type of, of um, yeah, of, of sickness, but but still, uh, I think we should take these issues of Putin's health like uh, in, in, uh, in our discussion um, that apart from uh, kind of uh, palace coups and, and uh, mass mobilization, also the health of the autocrat is kind of a, an important issue in such a highly, in such a highly personalized uh, authoritarian regime. Um, and so what could cause elites to, to mobilize against um, the autocrat, I think it might be, I mean, that, that's 
pure speculation and at, at this point i don't see any indications but it could be some kind of outrageous decision maybe on whatever nuclear weapons that something in in the war in ukraine is completely going out of control that uh, at some point in the future uh, there's a really bloody crackdown of protesters so that could um, kick off um, uh, kind of um, a cascade of elite defections of mass defections uh, within the elite which then could ha um, effect, uh, have in fact um, uh, systemic effects on on the regime as such and uh, we obviously we don't know how um, massive the economic shock will be in the next half year etc but that certainly uh, could also be yeah one of one of the the major issues that could cause um, a cascade of elite defections and um, not as we've discussed before in the in the middle ranks or in the rank and rank and file positions um, lower down the bureaucracy both civilian but also military but kind of once we start seeing more uh, serious defections and that's why i think it's really important to to closely monitoring this uh, both statements but also actions then i think uh, yeah we um we would be in a phase where uh, we should be talking um, yeah, more seriously about, about risks for, for Putin himself. Yes, I think this is it. I, mean, I absolutely agree that at the moment it's very hard to see it. And the interesting thing is that actually the FSB, the FSO and so forth, they don't need to listen to everyone's phone call. In an atmosphere of such heightened paranoia, given that you know it might be the case and that that person you're talking to might be an informant, then it becomes very difficult. It's one thing to join a coup plot. It's another thing to start one. So here to the whole collective action issue you're raising. Though we also do know that uh, such is the fervid rumour mill environment that the first time someone sees a, an olive drab army truck parked somewhere near the Kremlin, someone is going to be saying, this is a sign and the coup is happening. But that leads me on to really the, the, the last point I wanted to make is, you know, again, as I say, we, we are in this particularly heightened environment now in which, to be blunt, no one knows ever, anything. So everyone claims to know something because, after all, if, knowledge may not be power, but it is also certainly gets you an audience. So what are, particularly for you, the more implausible rumours that are currently doing the rounds that we should be aware of, but also be wary of? Well, I think, um, yeah, it's the information environment is really tough, especially when, when people seek very quick answers to developing events, and that makes it really hard. And um, what, what I found really interesting is when monitoring kind of these elite developments and trying to systematically monitoring them and also take notes and create databases, etc. It uh, is that we have kind of this the proliferation of rumors relating to all sorts of purges, elite defections, or likely coups, etc. So I found that interesting that kind of this fog of war uh, creates an environment that is. Um, conducive uh, to the proliferation of these kinds of kinds of rumors so i tried to think about this for myself like what what would be the guide to to uh to what information should i trust and um how should we actually approach these kind of rumors i mean it's i, I think we are really in an uncharted war in terms of uh, kind of the lack of well-sourced reporting because of the crackdown on on the last independent media in in russia 
about due to the wartime censorship. Um, I mean, there are still a few exceptions, and I, I think, um, yeah, journalists like Farida Rustamova and Andrei Pertsev, Soldatov, Grozov, they're doing really a, a great work, but I mean, for, for a complete understanding of, of whole dynamics, that is clearly not, not enough. So I, I find it really tough um, to make um, uh, judgments on, on specific um, issues. And uh, what we've discussed before, the kind of this wishful thinking. So we have this assumption that things are going bad um, in the war. So there must be a purges or elite defections, etc. So this kind of uh, wishful thinking also is uh, very conducive for this kind of rumors and obviously uh, verification takes time and at this point we uh, nobody really has that time so um so i i try to for myself to uh, maybe this will be helpful to to listeners to also make sense of the flood of news and rumors we we are getting um on russia on the war um i try to categorize them in 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 certain um um yeah categories uh, sorry for this uh, repetition so um, parts of it uh, certainly is um, yeah uh, bad reporting and, and clickbait journalism that that we have seen i mean one example is um yeah one report by the daily beast that putin has allegedly sacked some 1000 people um like from cooks to launderers to secretaries and bodyguards um and replaced them with other uh, kinds of people and then which in kind of in mid-February, okay, so it's a fairly dodgy source, but also it's in, if you think about, uh, yeah, an autocrat in, in the midst of a war sacking 1,000 people, uh, that doesn't really seem to be that logic because um, that creates like 1,000 people with kind of intimate knowledge of what's going on in, in the Kremlin potentially, even though these are kind of cooks and launderers and that would be, I mean, completely risky. So that's uh, kind of on, only from the logic judging uh, by it that uh, it seems to be, um, yeah, not very credible. And, and in fact, uh, at least that I've not seen a second source that would actually uh, kind of confirm um, this, this kind of speculation and uh, other kinds of speculations that uh, I think are due to, to bad reporting or clickbait journalism, mostly Western, one should, one should note is um, kind of uh, all sorts of uh, issues about plans to assassinate Putin um, or fears that, that Sergei Shagou could uh, in fact um, attempt a coup next week, really, that, that, uh, that this is really uh, likely to happen absolutely right now. Uh, because he's not he's not um, kind of been he's not been seen in, in the public for a few days or a week uh, so this this kind of environment obviously also creates um uh this kind of reporting mostly in kind of yellow press and in, in the west but sometimes it really makes uh, makes its way into the mainstream uh, which i think it's uh, makes it fairly dangerous um and um kind of another category which i find interesting also is um uh, misinformation, some of it coming out of Ukraine. So I understand that some some people in Ukraine, due to the war, they have incentives to spread rumors or speculations that Putin is in danger, that things are, go are going not that well, and that kind of the regime is about to collapse. And I think this also, this environment of war um, is also um, conducive within Ukraine to um, yeah, to spread this, uh, these kind of uh, rumors. Uh, one example is, uh, in fact, on 26th of February, 
so very early on that uh, Gerasimus, so the head of uh, the general staff of the Russian army, uh, was dismissed. So that that's that's one of the fairly frequent uh, rumors that that some key official uh, was dismissed. But and and it was spread by by a Rada deputy Alexei Honcharenko. Um, so it's, it has been possible to trace the source, but in fact, um, yeah, um, uh, only a few days later, he was still seen at, at some events with uh, Shoigu, etc. So usually these, these kind of misinformations after a few days or even weeks, it's possible to, um, um, yeah, to, de to debunk them basically, but, but they still kind of uh, linger around and sometimes they, they even have a, have a contrary effect, like another Another example is a rumor uh, that was spread by Anton Gerashenko, so former Rada deputy also as well, who has like a, um, yeah, a telegram channel with uh, a lot of sub subscribers. And uh, basically he uh, spread the news that um, the head of the uh, Suhoi company, the United Aircraft Corporation, uh, Yuri Slusser, basically stepped down and doesn't support the war. Uh, and kind of this also made made rounds in in respective uh, um, yeah sources. Uh, but then just shortly after that, uh, Slusar uh, from this Sukhoi company basically made a public statement um, that he actually supports Putin and and the war. So it actually had the contrary effect, like forcing a person, an, an actor within the elite who uh, so far has remained fairly silent, basically in the backseat, um, coming out in in support. Of a war, and, and, and in fact, the, the, the website of, of Sukhoi was uh, was hacked, but it's still kind of this rumor uh, developed a life of its own within kind of this information environment uh, among Ukrainian um, uh, sources. Uh, so here, I think we should also be fairly, um, yeah, fairly, um, fairly slow in terms of consuming such kind of such kind of news, and 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 the last. Uh, type of information which I also find interesting um, and uh, which we should also take note of is kind of speculations and rumors uh, coming out of uh, sources related or directly from, from Russian opposition figures. Um, and probably they are also um, kind of made with the best of in intentions that kind of something uh, needs to change within Russia, but I think it's, we should really uh, take these these informations with a with a grain of salt, and uh, I've uh, three examples that are, to my mind, fairly fairly prominent. One example is Ilya Panamaryov, a former Duma deputy, who has also been, yeah, who was forced out of the Russian state state Duma, and who's now based in, in Kiev, uh, supporting Ukraine, and and he has created a prominent, fairly, uh, yeah, Facebook website and a network of yeah, also a YouTube channel, etc. But uh, I think his Facebook feed is really a great source of these kind of rumors um, and um, and speculations that I think we should be fairly uh, careful um, about when when taking them uh, at at face value. Um, another example would be Leonid Volkov, sort of former Navalny uh, chief of staff. Uh, and here, I think, uh, well, the, people like to engage in speculations, but he also had, had this one post where he said that uh, Shoigu was likely to stage a coup uh, against Putin. Um, so also very interesting that Vladimir Milov, also close Navalny associate, he uh, most likely due to his background within uh, the Russian state, he basically very well understands how 
um, how does the Russian state functions and how kind of institutions uh, check each other. So he had this uh, fairly interesting take on why a coup is fairly unlikely. But on the other hand, like Volkov had the speculation to also uh, shared fairly widely that Shoigu could, could be the official uh, most likely to, to stage a coup um, against Putin because of, because of the war. And the, and the last example would be Leonid uh, Nevzlin, so the former Yukos um, um, yeah, associate who's been in Israel, I think for yeah for more than more than a decade, for fairly for a lot of years, and and I think his um, yeah Facebook posts and, and Twitter posts also made the rounds, also uh, was shared fairly widely that uh, Shoigu had an had an infarct, uh, maybe not of natural reasons. That twenty Ministry of Defense generals uh, were arrested. That uh, criminal case against uh, Dvorkovich is in the making, and that Sukhov is under house arrest. Um, and here, that, that's um, also kind of would be one of the sources uh, where I think we should be fairly, um, fairly careful because uh, specifically because of, of these kind of statements. Uh, because shortly after Nevzlin made this post, uh, Shoigu once again appeared uh, in the public and uh, made uh, kind of statements. And uh, yeah, today only he uh, he met. Well, if it's if it's not something pre-recorded, which uh, but we we should always assume that these kind of pre-recordings are are being made. But after Nevzlin has made the statement, Shoigu has appeared uh, in the public uh, already multiple times. Uh, so um, even kind of which doesn't really. Uh, square well with with a statement with this very clear statement that he has suffered from from an infarct. Um, so um, I think these would be the kind of the the categories uh, we should take note of. Mainly kind of bad reporting, misinformation, and speculations and rumors uh, among various sources, and it might be helpful for listeners and and readers of of your blog to to make sense of um, of talks about the Russian elite uh, in, in, in the fog of war. Yeah, I think it's a very, very useful reminder that uh, it is not just that there is active disinformation going on, which of course there is, this is an information war, as long as, as well as all the other different types of war it is. But there is also just a huge amount of fog and a degree to which people don't really know, but that doesn't stop them from overlaying their own assumptions, their own prejudices, their own interests on what little fragments of, of data does emerge. Well, look, that's been very, very helpful indeed. Thank you very much indeed for, for sharing your, your views with me and thus with whoever is out there in the ether listening to this podcast. Let me remind you, it's been Fabian Burkhart. Very much, I will strongly encourage you to follow him on Twitter. I'll include the, the Twitter handle in, in the program notes along with links to various articles and so forth that were mentioned. And for now, thank you, Fabian, very much indeed. Thank you for having me. So that was my interview with Fabian. As I said, it, I'm still experimenting with formats. I'm also going to try some sort of shorter 20 to 30 minute things. But this was a chance to really allow Fabian to really develop his, his very thoughtful and I think sort of quite compelling take on the fact that this is a system which puts a great premium from the top on stability, and one in which we shouldn't, and this is something that he's expanded on in several of his writings, shouldn't focus too much on the personality of the one guy at the top, the president, but also look at the institutional presidency. We actually also have to look at all the different processes at work at the same time. Anyway, as I said, any comments you may have, any suggestions for other people it would be interesting to think, 
to about to bring into talk. Again, from my point of view, I'm particularly interested in being able to amplify voices that aren't already out there. Then do please get in touch. Probably a rather more conventional type of podcast coming next, and in part that depends on quite what happens in Russia and in Ukraine. In the meantime, as ever, thank you for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мной.